Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible today, will you turn with me to Genesis 18, or the two texts I want to read are on page 12 in your bulletin. The first is the well-known story of Abraham interceding for Sodom. God has shown up with these three angels in the form of three men, and the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham when I'm up, what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he's promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I, who am but dust and ashes, suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And then a few brief verses from Genesis 20. From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent person? people? Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister, and she herself said he's my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. And God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. This is the word of the Lord. And our prayer, Father, as always, that your spirit will work with your word now to bring transforming power into our hearts and lives through this word. In Jesus we pray. Amen. So in our opening message in this short series uh, called School of the Prophets, I, I took us back to try to get a fresh look at the day of Pentecost. Now you guys know that the day of Pentecost is the day when Jesus, having already gone back to the Father, pours out his Holy Spirit on his church. He gives the Holy Spirit to his people. And what I tried to lay out in that message was that against the background of the whole Bible, that was actually a transfer of Jesus's prophetic 
mission, his mission as God's prophet. In other words, just as God took Moses' spirit and gave it to Joshua, his successor, and he took Elijah's spirit and gave a double portion of Elijah's spirit to Elisha, his successor, in the same way, he took the spirit of Jesus, the great prophet, and gave it to the church. God has a life-giving word for this world, right? He has spoken that through the prophets. He spoke that through his son. And now we, beloved, we, the church, are the conduits of that word of God to the world. And I tried to make that case, and you can judge whether you think that case was made. But that is my case, that the church is a school of the prophets. And if it is a school of the prophets, then we have a reason to take some time with the lives and the work of all of those prophets who came before Jesus. So just take a fresh look at them because we're, in a sense, their successors. And I'm going to take six profiles from that line of prophets through this series, and I just want to talk about each of these profiles and try to get some wisdom about our mission as in this school of prophets. And the first, the first person identified in the Bible as a prophet, as you just heard, is a surprising person. You wouldn't think of him necessarily, and that, of course, is Abraham. And the very fact that Abraham is a surprise, like you're like, Abraham's a prophet? You know, I picture Samuel, Moses, you know, Daniel, Jeremiah. But the fact that Abraham kind of surprises us with the fact that he's the first person God identifies as a prophet, that surprise is important. It's Abraham's unusualness that actually should strike us because he shows us prophethood in a form that's actually relatable, whereas a lot of the other prophets maybe are not quite so relatable. And I think that partly because of the way that he's presented to us as a prophet, there's a rebuke here for a very popular tendency in our time towards kind of quote-unquote prophetic posturing, this kind of publicity prophetism that is very popular now, and and Abraham kind of rebukes that in part just because he's a very simple character. I I want to just talk about three things about Abraham today. I'm trying to move through this pretty quickly, but I just want to show you some things about Abraham the prophet, and the very first thing I want to underscore very briefly is just this fact that I've already mentioned, which is Abraham the prophet is ordinary. He's ordinary. If you really think about Abraham's life, You know, the Bible mostly gives us those episodes in Abraham's life where something kind of supernatural happens to him. And he does have some, like, pretty shocking stuff that happens. You know, God shows up and talks to him. Eventually, at 100 years old, he has a child. You know, there are some, some, like, serious things that only God could do in his life. But do you realize that Abraham spent 100 years walking around Canaan? Doing what most of the time? I mean, decades would pass between God's visits. And you know what he was doing? If you'd met Abraham in sort of the ordinary course of his life, he'd look um, ordinary. <laughs> the guy raises sheep. You know, he does pretty well for himself, given his nomadic lifestyle. But, you know, he, his life is very simple. Years and years and years of just kind of doing ordinary life things, very unexotic. You'd be like, You're, you know, it doesn't seem like he's anything particularly special. And I think that that's, that's helpful because for those of us for whom the idea of being a prophet. You know, the idea of prophethood can be very intimidating. You, you kind of picture this guy out on a street corner with a picket sign, you know, challenging the world, and it can be very intimidating, but I think Abraham helps us because he's a very ordinary man. It's a comfort just to see his ordinariness. Abraham is not special. It is his God who's awesome, but Abraham himself is not particularly awesome. He's just a guy, and most of what he does is just live his life, very simple life before the Lord. He's ordinary. That's important. Then I'd like you to notice, secondly, 
that Abraham's main prophetic work, his main work as a prophet, is not proclaiming, it is praying. And I just want to let that sink in. If we're a school of the prophets, notice that Abraham's main prophetic work, now this will not be true of other prophets so much necessarily, but his main prophetic work is not being out there proclaiming the word of the Lord, it is praying. And you get that in the, it's very clear in the one direct reference to him being a prophet. If you look in your text at chapter 20, verse 7, it's the very last verse in your reading there, God says, Abraham is a prophet, he will pray for you, Abimelech. He'll pray. That's what he'll do as a prophet. Now, if that doesn't fit our usual idea of what a prophet is and what a prophet does, you think again of this very confrontational, speaking in the streets kind of thing, but this tells us something crucial about prophetic ministry, and I want to just, I just want you to kind of let this sink in as we're getting into the roots of what a prophet really is. A prophet is someone to whom God obviously reveals his word. That's, that's, that's right at the heart of being a prophet. A prophet is someone to whom God has made known his word. His, God has, give, has opened his thoughts to you. He has, he has opened his mind and his counsels to you. And it is true that sometimes the reason God speaks that word and reveals that word to you is because he wants you to speak it to other people. That, that is true. That, that's one of the things that we're sent to do with God's word. But sometimes, beloved, God reveals his word to you because he wants you to pray that word back to him for others. And you see this in the big-time prophets. Moses speaks the word of God, but he also prays it. He prays, God, remember your word, remember your covenant, and he prays that on behalf of Israel. Elijah does the same thing. God has said, I'm going to close heaven for some time, and then I'm going to open heaven. And what does Elijah do? We're told by the, by, in James, we just took a, a study of this a few weeks ago. He says, Elijah prayed, God, your word be done. What you have said be done. And he prays for the rain to stop, and he prays for the rain to come. Daniel will be the, another obvious example. We find him in that beautiful prayer in Daniel chapter 9 where he takes the, the prophecy of Jeremiah and he basically just prays, God, you've spoken. Let your word be done in the, in the life of Israel. And so what you see these prophets doing, they're speaking God's word for the nations to God. <laughs> Sometimes God wants prophets to speak his word for the nations to the nations. Sometimes he wants prophets to speak his word for the nations to him. That is a prophetic work. And in fact, sometimes, as you see here with Abraham, God's word will not go into effect until the prophet prays it. This is very interesting, this little few verses about Abimelech, you know, this king in Gerar, he accidentally, or inadvertently rather, takes Sarah from Abraham, thinking she is his sister, and God tells Abimelech how he can be restored, give her back, but it is not until Abraham tells God that the condition has been met and calls on God to show his promised mercy. is okay, Lord, he gave Sarah back. Let it be according to your word. It's not until that happens, until Abraham calls on him, that he heals Abimelech's household. All the women were barren until he restored Sarah. So the word doesn't even take effect until the prophet prays. Now, why, why do we need to stress this? Well, this is, again, very comforting, like Abraham's ordinariness, because you know, dear saints, any one of you, you can pray. I know that if I told you today, after worship, we're going to go out on the street corner down, you know, where Jackson meets Jericho, and y'all are going to start preaching on the street corner. Some of you be like, I have a dinner burning at home. I'd be that way. I hate that kind of stuff. I actually hate speaking in front of people, weirdly enough. 
and many of you would find that intimidating. Anybody can pray. Anybody can take the word of the Lord and go into your closet and pray, Lord, according to your word, let it be. But it's also, this, there is a rebuke here in Abraham's prayerfulness. It's a rebuke to a very per- perverted, quote-unquote, prophetism in our time where people, you know, so many people in our world today are speaking like they are prophets. They are speaking with this oracular tone, kind of thundering what needs to be heard. But you notice most of these prophetic movements would be completely lost without a microphone. If they didn't have a pulpit to pound and some way to get it out there and shout it in the streets of social media, wherever it is, they just would be lost as a prophetic movement. You know, protest is nothing if it's not public and loud. Lots of publicity, please. True prophetism spends time in the prayer closet where nobody can hear except God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That is a prophetic work. There's also another corrective, I think, to some of the quote-unquote prophetic craziness of our time. People just, you know, shouting the truth to power and all of this sort of thing. There's another corrective here. The prayers of this man, Abraham, focus on mercy in judgment. Mercy in judgment. You surely see it here in the prayer for Sodom. You know, a lot of quote-unquote, again, I use air quotes, prophetic fervor today is just so vindictive. Just shouting against people, speaking loudly against this and against that. And, you know, there's a place for that. But there's a kind of vindictiveness often. Those people need to be brought down. Those people should suffer. Those people should, you know, sort of be smashed. It's very interesting that the biblical prophets, now they do at times call down God's judgments, but usually the biblical prophets are calling upon God not to unleash torrents of indiscriminate judgment, just sort of, you know, basically they're often calling on God, let's not have the flood again. Let's not just wipe the whole thing out. Just blast it all indiscriminately to hell. Don't unleash wrath without mercy, because God, to do that would be to subvert your own great promised work in history, which is to redeem a people, to call a people out of darkness and out of death and out of damnation into your kingdom of light and hope and life in wrath. Remember mercy. So often that is the spirit of prophetic prayer. That is a corrective in our time. And the most shocking thing about Abraham's prophetic work of prayer, this actually hit me in a whole new way even studying this week. Abraham frames that mercy. Don't destroy the righteous with the wicked. Abraham frames that. This is so bold. He frames it in terms of God doing the right thing. Abraham speaks to God. Did you hear it in the prayer for Sodom? He speaks to God with a kind of moral authority. He he calls on God to act according to his own revealed standard of righteousness, especially in showing mercy to those who are righteous in the city. He like calls on God, God, do the right thing. I mean, it's really strong, his questions. Far be it from you to destroy the righteous with the wicked. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Wow, that's just, how do you talk to God that way? How can he adopt that stance toward God? How does, why does God invite him to do it? Abraham could have no standing here, except God has said, I'm going to open this up to Abraham, and I'm going to hear him speak. 
Why does God invite Abraham to speak with that kind of moral authority? Abraham can speak to God with God's own moral authority, God's own moral authority. He's calling on God to act according to his godness because he himself is a man under God's authority. Abraham is a man whose whole life is submitted to, committed to, being formed by God's righteousness and justice. You see it there in verse 19, his righteousness and his justice. And because he is a man submitted to God's righteousness and justice in his own life, he can call upon God, do what is right, do what is just, be it according to your word and according to your character. That's his main work. And that brings me to the third thing, the last thing I want to talk about. Abraham is ordinary. His main prophetic work is not proclaiming but praying. The third thing, though, that I want you to notice in light of what I just said about Abraham being under the word is that the core of Abraham's prophetic mission, the core of Abraham's prophetic mission is a household under the word. And I want to take a minute or two here with verses 17 through 19, because this is the core of Abraham's prophetic mission, his own household under the word of God. Now, we've moved upstream here from Abraham's work of prayer, which I've said was his, you know, in his case, it was the main work, was to pray as a prophet. We've moved upstream from that to the very heart of Abraham's prophetic mission. And God himself identifies this in verses 17 through 18. He says, I'm going to talk to Abraham about what I'm going to do. I'm going to reveal my word to him as a prophet. Why would I hide it from him? Because Abraham is going to become a great and mighty nation through whom all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Because I've chosen him to command his children and household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised to him. And that is the heart of Abraham's prophetic mission. God chose this man to be a conduit of blessing to all the nations. God wants life to flow to the nations through this man. He was chosen for that work, and that's a kind of prophetic work, to, to bring God's life-giving word and truth and gospel and promises and kingdom to the nations. But you'll notice God chose him to be that conduit, that that vessel through which all that blessing flows, not first through preaching, not even first through praying the Word of God, but through living the Word of God. That's the core of the prophetic mission. The light to the nations through Abraham is going to begin, the, the, the taproot of it is not transmitting the Word, but submitting to it. There will be transmitting, but it is submitting to the Word that is where it begins. It's this long, life-giving process of receiving and being formed by the Word as a household that is really at the core of being a blessing to the nations. Now, I, want, I really want to drop that anchor, beloved, very, very firmly for a moment. And I call it an anchor purposefully because I don't even know, dear saints, if you and I and Christians in general today even realize how forcefully the currents of our age are pulling our Christian prophetic witness toward reactivity. I don't even know if we are awake to how forcefully our, the cultural movements of our time are pulling on us in our Christian prophetic witness to be reactive. The spirit of the age, I think it is safe to say, is expose and denounce and negate and overthrow. You know, hashtag 
the resistance, and it comes red-flavored, and it comes blue-flavored, and I will spare you examples. But this is the spirit of the age. Now, it, there's no question that biblical prophethood has a place for resistance. I've got a whole message in a few weeks that we're going to call, it's going to be about the resistance. Biblical prophethood has a place for resistance. But, dear saints, I just want to drop so hard this anchor. God's agenda is not set by what the nations are doing. Can, can, I, can I just... God's agenda and what he wants to be driving the lives of his people is not set by the nations. There is a sense in which, as the nations rage, God just laughs and moves on with his agenda. The way of the Lord into which Abraham was called, and the word of the Lord, he wants to flow through this man and his household, that way and that word do not depend on, quote-unquote, them. So much of what I hear from Christians today is about what they are doing. God alone knows who they are. That is not what drives God's agenda. There is a place for resistance, but God's agenda is constructive, not reactive. What would Jesus resist? What, how would Jesus resist? I think it is becoming increasingly hard to answer those questions if for no other reason than we can barely even imagine anymore a resistance movement that is mostly constructive as opposed to reactive. Because it's easier, and it generates more likes on Instagram to denounce than it does to do the slow, hard, painful, patient work of building and showing a better way. You know, I, I just, I, my, my own personal opinion, and I'm almost done with this mini rant, my own opinion is, is that reactivity just appeals to people who lack the vision, they lack the skill, and bluntly, they lack the patience for building, for constructive building. Because God's building. He's just building whatever the nations are doing. Move on, Ben. This principle, this principle that prophetic witness begins not with shouting at the nations. It begins with receiving and living the word of God, especially in the micro-kingdoms of our households. You know, you can see in the Bible, clearly that carries way beyond Abraham, doesn't it? You know, it's, it's Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Teach that to your children as you're walking, as you're sitting, as you're rising up, as you're lying down. Just write these, write these things on the doorpost and lintel of your house. And it goes all the way into the New Testament, doesn't it? As you've received Christ Jesus, the Lord, the living word of God, so now walk in him, walk in the word. And what does that look like? It looks like fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, masters, slaves, and Christian households. This is, this is where God's people receive and live the word as prophets. And I just want briefly now, I will be brief, to just point out a, a few features of a prophetic household. And you see it here in these three verses, verses 17 through 19, just a few features of a prophetic household at the core of our mission. How the Word of God takes flesh in our everyday lives in ways that I just believe have so much influence beyond our households. Four quick things, and I will move through this quickly. Four features of a prophetic life, a prophetic household. Number one, you'll notice, is sovereignty. Keep the way of the Lord. You see, this starts, this prophetic mission of Abraham and his family starts with the fact that they didn't go looking for God. God came to them. God chose them. 
He is the Lord. <laughs> you know, prophets are not people who go exploring and, and who uh, kind of in their explorations of God, they kind of study this object out there, you know, they're, they're trying to study. Prophets are people who find themselves often startling, startlingly addressed. It's not like a prophet's moving along and you stumble across this thing called God and you start like, you know, man's search for God. It's the other way around. God comes to the prophet. God comes and just startlingly, sovereignly speaks and the prophet is suddenly wide awake. This family was called into the way of the Lord. He is the sovereign. And what they have discovered, this family, and are discovering every day, is that you know what? To be mastered by this master, to be ruled by this king, to be loved by this Lord, to be under his grace, to be under his promises, to be under his care, his law, his wisdom, that is life. To be under this Lord is to live. It is to be liberated into everything we were meant to be. There is sovereignty here. D.H. Uh, Lawrence is not someone I would expect to articulate this in a way that would work in a sermon, but in 1924, he published an essay, and I want to read you a few lines from this essay because it speaks to what Abraham and his family have found under God's sovereignty so beautifully. And it rebukes some of our American individualism and independence. Lawrence writes, liberty is all very well, but men cannot live without masters. There is always a master. And men either live in glad obedience to the master they believe in, or they live in a frictional opposition to the master they wish to undermine. In America, he says, this frictional opposition has been the vital factor. Men are free when they are in a living homeland, not when they're straying and breaking away. Men are free when they are obeying some deep inward voice of religious belief, obeying from within. Men are free when they belong to a living, organic, believing community, active in fulfilling some unfulfilled, perhaps unrealized purpose, not when they're escaping to some wild west. The most unfree souls go west and shout of freedom. Men are freest when they are most unconscious of freedom. The shout is a rattling, rattling of chains. Always was. Abraham and his family have found sovereignty, and under that sovereignty, they shine with the light of God. Second thing, second feature of a prophetic household, there's not just sovereignty, there's purpose. Because in the way of the Lord, where is it going? To keep the way of the Lord, verse 19, by doing righteousness and justice. In the way of the Lord, there's the sovereignty, there is a chief end. And that chief end, which is the very fulfillment of our being, it's what we were made for. You're kind of like not authentic without becoming this. The chief end is to do righteousness and justice. Now, if you, if you look at that phrase throughout the Old Testament, you know that righteousness and justice is a kind of summary phrase of the whole ethical duty of man. To do righteousness and justice is just to do all that God has called us to be and to do. It is to love the Lord your God and is to love your neighbor. That is the chief end of Abraham's family. In God's sovereignty, in his way, they've got a purpose. You exist to do righteousness and justice. And so what, what this brings is this relational orientation to their entire household life. Are we doing righteousness and justice? That structures their investments, it structures their acquisitions, 
their exertions, is this helping us to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbors? Are, as we do this, as we acquire this, as we invest in this, are we seeing more of the fruit, we would say in the New Testament, the fruit of the Holy Spirit coming forth? Is this producing more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control, and so on? That is the end that helps us figure out what the means to the end ought to be. And I think that is so transformational. It has such a prophetic witness in a world, in an age, that Albert Einstein, of all people, said is characterized by a perfection of means and confusion of goals. That's the modern world. And we have a prophetic witness as those who are constantly oriented towards righteousness and justice, because that's the end. The question then becomes what means, whereas we live in an age that has got more and more perfect means, and we are so confused about the ends and the goals. A society that thinks only of what can be done and how it can be done better is a society that has not answered why this should be done as opposed to that should be done or why anything should be done at all. Why? And you can have a society, I think we are this society, where you can become more and more bureaucratically efficient, more and more technically proficient, and you're not becoming one bit more virtuous, more righteous, more just, more gracious, more loving, because the horizon of this society is what is possible, not what is good. That's what drives society. The means, we don't, we don't have an end. You know households can become like that. You can have a household that is so organized, so efficient, and everyone in the household is proficient in this skill. They're proficient in that field of knowledge. They're proficient in that hobby interest. They are set to make money. They're set to maintain this middle-class lifestyle, and none of it necessarily is contributing to doing righteousness and justice. That is the thing. That is the purpose. But these people have purpose. They have sovereignty. They have purpose. A third thing, a third feature. This isn't just Abraham. It's his children and his household. And so there's a third feature, and that is membership. Every child in the household participates in pursuing righteousness and justice in the way of the Lord. Every member of the household, right down to the household servants, they all participate, and so they discover something so beautiful and in our time so prophetic, they discover identity, real identity in belonging. And in this way, the household life we see here, it shatters this false conflict between individualism and collectivism that's just is raging in our society now. You know, individualism, you do you, and collectivism kind of like be a part of the machine. And the crazy thing now is the more you do you, the more you're part of the machine. And the more you're part of the machine, it encourages you, you do you, and it just kind of feeds off of each other. But th this is neither. This is not individualism or collectivism. This life in this way, pursuing righteousness and justice together, it opens up the possibility that I might find myself by losing myself in loving service, doing righteousness and justice to those among whom God has placed me. No one has ever said this better than C.S. Lewis. Listen to this beautiful description of membership, and you can see it in Abraham's household and how prophetic this is in our time. He says, Christianity cuts across this antithesis between individualism and collectivism. It sets its face relentlessly against our natural individualism. On the other hand, it gives back to those who abandon individualism 
an eternal possession of their own personal being. The key to true personality does not lie in ourselves. It won't be attained by development from within outwards. True personality will come to us when we occupy those places in the structure of the eternal cosmos for which we were designed. We shall first be true persons when we have suffered ourselves to be fitted into our places. Starting with the doctrine that every individuality is of infinite value, we picture God as a kind of employment committee whose business it is to find suitable careers for souls, square holes for square pegs. In fact, however, the value of the individual does not lie in him. He is capable of receiving value. He receives it by union with Christ. There's no question of finding for him a place in the living temple which will do justice to his inherent value and give scope to his natural idiosyncrasy. The place was there first. The man was created for it. He will not be himself till he's there. Sovereignty, purpose, membership. And the last feature of a prophetic household, an influential household, I didn't know what word to choose, so I just chose the word Catholicity. You know, the word Catholic, little c Catholic, just means wide as the world. And it's very interesting that as they live under the word, this family, this household, that life under the word can embrace all the diversity of generation after generation after generation. And then it's going to embrace even more diversity because it's going to spread to all nations. But it does that without ever losing its integrity. Because the ends don't change. In every generation, in every nation, we're still pursuing righteousness and justice, but the means to do that will change over generations. They will change from nation to nation. The virtue remains constant. Love God, love your neighbor. Everything's moving toward that. This is the way of the Lord. But the skills that you need in building those virtues, those skills will vary. And so the astonishing thing is that the life that results over time in this household, it is not rigid like so much rigid conservatism, and it's not relativistic like so much relativistic progressivism where it just kind of depends always on situation and context. It's neither of those. The life of this household over time is characterized both by the stability and the flexibility of what the Bible calls wisdom. Keep the way of the Lord. And you know what? 1961, pursuing the way of the Lord is going to look different from 2021. It's going to look different from 2081. There's stability, but there's also flexibility. And so in this life under the word, we can actually reconcile. How would this change our society? We can actually reconcile, on one hand, the impulse to conserve. There are things that should be kept. There are things that should be retained and held onto. And also the impulse to critique and to create, because we need to let go of that, and we need to grab hold of this and do something else, and build something new. Both impulses, this life under the word, can, can, can hold on to. And I, I, it's, I don't know if I can say it any better than Hugh Hecklow. He says, in any creative activity of the human spirit, I would add, including righteousness and justice, in any creative, creative activity of the human spirit, improvisation, is intelligible and possible because there's an an inherited background against which to improvise and be playful. Improvisation is intelligible and possible because there's this inherited background against which we can improvise and be playful. That is the Catholicity of this way of the Lord. And so the household, I believe, 
in that it's a model for all social arrangements. Aren't most social fights between the people who want to conserve and the people who want to create? And they're reconciled here. There's an organic life here that no amount of mass management can ever produce, and it begins in this prophetic household. Now, I want to wrap up just by connecting all this to Advent and, and just kind of direct it to us a bit more specifically. Because as you look at this righteous man, Abraham, living faithfully under the word of God, and through his prayers and through his obedience, God is going to bless all the nations. You just really can't fail to see that this is not just pointing us to Abraham. It's pointing us through Abraham beyond himself to his great coming seed, Jesus, the Messiah. And Jesus, of course, is the one who fulfills all righteousness. He keeps the way of the Lord perfectly. He fulfills all righteousness and justice. And in doing that, as the true seed of Abraham, he secures God's blessing by his obedience for all nations, including us. But it's so glorious to reflect on the fact that Jesus now is the, the true seed of Abraham through whom the nations are blessed. He makes, beloved, and this gets back to the prophethood thing, he makes you and me participants in blessing the nations he makes us participants in doing righteousness and justice for the good of the nations. But he does not do that by just commanding. See, Abraham was to command his household to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. But the glorious thing about Jesus is he doesn't just command us to keep the way of the Lord and do righteousness and justice to bring life and blessing to the nations. He gives us his own spirit to do it. That's the point of Pentecost that you and I have been filled with the Holy Spirit of Jesus himself, and so there is power from on high, power we don't have in ourselves, power that even being commanded by God cannot give us, power from within to live that word and to pray that word and to do righteousness and justice and to intercede the word of God before him in order that the nations might be blessed. That is the lesson of Abraham. More to come, but for now let's pray. Father, we thank you for these profiles of the prophets. We thank you for this simple man, for his household life and his prayer closet and the ways in which, Lord God, this calls us to something of just the simplicity of bearing witness by living under your word and praying it for the nations. Fill us with your spirit to that end and glorify yourself. In Jesus we pray, amen.